Good morning, everyone. As you are turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, as we are continuing on through the book of Acts, I was thinking this morning about what it means to share the gospel with people and some of the challenges that, uh, that we may face, internal challenges. And uh, sometimes we have fear and really don't want to share with people, and there might be various causes for that, various reasons for that. And uh, I don't know what they all are. Of course, we're all different, but in a sense, we're all kind of the same too. And so I don't know what all those differences are, but the, the main obstacle that we have to get over in sharing the gospel with people is not, maybe surprisingly, is not the uh, objections they may raise. Sometimes they will, the person you're sharing with might raise an objection and uh, they might have a, a reason for uh, raising this objection and they'll, they'll um, say something, you know, to challenge. Maybe they've heard a challenge against Christianity or the Bible is not true because of this or, or some other uh, argument that they may have. And really those arguments are not the biggest obstacle that we face when we share the gospel with people. Those are just issues to be dealt with. Usually, by the way, just as a, as a hint, those are usually smoke screens, really, that the person just really doesn't like to talk about this, and so they kind of throw stuff at you to try and keep you dodging so that eventually they can just run off <laughs> and get out of the conversation. And so um, often those things are just smoke screens and can be dealt with and, and whatever. But uh, take heart, Christian, that we have truth on our side. And uh, the Word of God has been under attack since the beginning, as we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning, and yet here it is. And uh, it stands up to the attacks that are brought against it. The, the greatest obstacle is not the objections that people might bring. Very often, one of the greatest obstacles that we face when we're sharing the gospel with someone is that they don't want to change their lifestyle. They realize about themselves that if they were to submit to this God that you're proclaiming, if they were to believe in this Jesus that you're telling them about, that what that would mean is they no longer get to call the shots in their own life and they're pretty well attached to uh, their, their lifestyle and the things that they believe, the things that they do, the things that they practice. And, uh, and so when it comes down to it, one of the largest obstacles sometimes is what uh, lifestyle changes people might have to make. And so that's a bigger issue, isn't it? You can't just find, uh, you know, a good answer to that stuff. You can't just go talk to a smart person who knows how to answer that question and solve that issue because it's a hard issue, right? And so this, this is why sharing the gospel is so difficult and ministering to people can be so difficult because in a sense, humanly speaking, it's impossible because we're talking about the heart and I can't reach in and affect your heart and we can't reach in and affect the heart of a person we're sharing the gospel with. And so that large obstacle of lifestyle and, and what it means to uh, my beliefs and my own practices in life when I hear the gospel, uh, G- Jesus is a threat to those things. And people often don't want to hear about this Jesus who threatens their sinful and pagan and unbelieving lifestyle. But Jesus uh, demands our allegiance. And so in the end, he actually is very much a threat to those things, to the old sinful order. And so in many ways... Those kinds of thoughts about objections that people have to uh, not wanting to give up their lifestyle, their sinful lifestyle, that's a lot of what's going on kind of behind the scenes here in Acts chapter 19 as we, as we uh, continue our way through this book. We're going to be dealing with this chapter today, and you're going to see that that theme comes up a lot about lifestyle and about what we would have to give up, what it means that we would uh, follow Christ. What are we leaving behind when we turn towards him in repentance? And so uh, before we go to God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on our time.
Father, this morning we come to you and we give you great thanks that you have done such a work in our hearts that uh, though we ourselves may have had similar objections at one time, though we ourselves may have thrown up smoke screens and may have tried to uh, dissuade or discourage that Christian who was sharing the gospel with us, yet you saw fit to, uh, to do a work in our hearts to draw us to yourself. And so we rejoice in that and we praise you that you have done so. And I know there are some maybe listening who have not done that, who, who remain in rebellion and who continue to throw up smoke screens, not even aware that they are smoke screens. I pray that you would work in them. Even during our time today, I pray that your word would have its effect. May we draw, uh, may you draw by your spirit our attention to you, to what you're doing, even as we learn about these historical events and these miracles that went on and these strange things that happened in Ephesus in the first century. May we be drawn to you through it and not just curious about ancient religions and ancient practices and ancient history. But may we be drawn to the true and living God through this time. So we ask that you would speak to us through your word and by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have in your bulletin there an outline that you can kind of follow along and it will kind of help guide you through our discussion of this chapter. And it's a little bit of a lengthy chapter, but it's it's uh, got a lot of very interesting stuff. And Paul has come back to Ephesus and you remember... Uh, from previously in the in the previous chapter, he had traveled through briefly, had gone into Ephesus real quick for a day trip, you know, and went to the synagogue and preached there and then had a, a very favorable reception. They said, we, we want to hear from you more. Come back to us. And he said, I'll come back another time, Lord willing. But then he kept on his journey to the east uh, on his way to Antioch and, and uh, from there. And so uh, we're going to see that when he comes back to Ephesus, though the ministry itself is very unusual, yet the message is the same. He's proclaiming the same thing. He didn't learn some new trick that caused this very fruitful ministry or this, uh, this uh, miracle-filled ministry. It's the usual message. It's the Word of God. And so we pick up our passage here in chapter 19 and starting in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And so he had been over in Antioch, and the last previous chapter said that he had been traveling through kind of the inward country, going through parts of southern Turkey there, visiting churches, strengthening the believers, etc. And this says, while, uh, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul was passing through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And so we see that when he shows up in Ephesus, he runs across, across some very unusual disciples. These are not the norm. And it's interesting that Luke calls them disciples and kind of leaves that undefined. Like we don't fully know what that means. And it seems like even to Paul, it, he didn't fully know what that meant because then he asked them, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul's been in ministry a long time. 
And uh, he, he's able to uh, look and see and, and know what good questions to ask people. And so here he's confronted with, uh, with these disciples and something about uh, the, their demeanor or their group or the things they said or something caused him to ask, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so uh, they said, well, no, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. We had not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, which, of course, causes further questions. And so he asked them, well, into what uh, were you baptized? And they said, in the baptism of John. And so you have a very interesting set here of, uh, of people, these disciples, these 12. They're disciples of John the Baptist, it would seem. But this is years after John the Baptist's ministry is over. He's been beheaded long since. The ministry's been over even, even uh, before Jesus' ministry on this earth was completed. And so uh, here you have a group of men who were, uh, I say men, it doesn't have to be men, but 12 disciples who were following John. They were called disciples, so they sure looked Christian. They seemed Christian and whatever. And yet you see, they didn't know about the, the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit coming upon you at belief. They didn't even know the Holy Spirit had been given. I, our translation says we didn't even know that there was or is a Holy Spirit. And that's a little bit enigmatic because if you remember the teaching of John the Baptist, thinking back to Luke chapter 3 and verse 16, John himself taught, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so it seems like what these men or what these people mean is that we didn't know that time was at hand. We didn't know the Holy Spirit had been given. We, we're still operating under the assumption uh, of John's ministry that this is something we're waiting for. This is something in the future. And so, of course, Paul responds to them and says, you know, John baptized you for repentance, pointing forward to the one who was to come, that is to Jesus. And so here you have these disciples who had a degree of knowledge, but it was it did not include Jesus. It, they didn't understand who Jesus was. And so uh, Paul preaches Christ to them. And, and of course, they, they, are, uh, they believe and they're baptized right there. And he lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. And then and more than that, they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. And so there's clear evidence given, visible evidence given, outward evidence given that uh, they are believers. They have now been included in the kingdom. And so this raises some questions for us about uh, what, uh, what it means that Paul laid hands on them and what it means that they, they uh, begin to prophesy and speak in tongues. And I said when we started the book of Acts that, that uh, this book is narrative and that we don't take narrative as normative. We don't just do what people did in the Bible because we read about it in the Bible. That would lead us all kinds of astray if you think about some of the particular stories. And uh, so what we do is we interpret, understand the narrative of Scripture to see uh, what it's teaching us, what's being said here, and what's being done here, and what's not being done. And so throughout the course of the book of Acts, you will see that sometimes when people become believers, they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. You'll see that other times they don't. You'll see that sometimes the laying on of hands is required in order for people to receive the Spirit. And other times you see that the laying on of hands is unnecessary. And so there's a little bit of confusion. There's a little bit of uh, that we have to think about here. And usually when we see that, when we think through the book of Acts, we think through chapter 2 and then chapter 8 and chapter 10 of our book, and then even now what's happening is the apostles are dealing with a particular transition group 
This is not just the gospel going out to, you know, your average neighbor or whatever. At Pentecost, of course, the gospel was coming to everybody. Jews primarily, right? So there were Jews there and God-fearers. And when they believed, you saw, you could tell that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. There were things going on and the the original uh, apostles were were, uh, speaking in tongues and whatnot. And so you see that God is putting his stamp of approval on that transition that now the gospel has gone into the world, meaning into the world of the Jews, and he puts his stamp of, of approval on it by these visible outward signs of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so you see that there, you see that happen. And later on, with the Samaritans in chapter 8, we have another transition group, right? The gospel has already been proclaimed to them, but remember uh, Peter and John go up there to minister to these Samaritans, and they minister to them, and when they do, and they, they, they lay hands on them, the Spirit comes on them at that point. And so you see, you have a transition group uh, going on here in, in Samaria, and then the same thing with the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 with Peter. And so you have these visible, unusual uh, kind of circumstances. In, in the book of Acts and in the Bible in general, when someone uh, believes, there are a few things that happen. And they may be perceived to happen in different order, and we see that in the book of Acts, but, but there, are, there are four things that happen uh, that are involved when a person comes to faith, right? They, they, they are baptized. They receive the Holy Spirit, right? They believe. And uh, my fourth one here. The laying, the laying on of hands, however, together with tongue-speaking, prophesying, were special to Ephesus. But you see these others. You see the, the repentance. You see the faith in Jesus. You see water baptism. And you see the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so these are the things that happen. But when you read the book of Acts, they don't always happen in the same order. Sometimes they're out of order. Sometimes they, they occur differently. But they're all there. They're all present, and this is one of the reasons why we encourage uh, people so much to uh, respond when they have believed, they have repented, they have received the Holy Spirit. You need to respond in baptism. We're trying to maintain that, that we respond in obedience with baptism. And so you see that you have this uh, unique story here of these disciples of John uh, who now have heard the gospel. They respond immediately by believing, right, and the, uh, and so Paul lays hands on them. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. There's evidence that this group too, this transition group too, who are kind of like Old Testament believers living in the New Testament time. And now Paul runs across them and you see evidence given that they are fully included into the uh, New Covenant community. That there's nothing different. There's nothing unique or special. We don't set them aside. We don't treat them as different. They are fully included as well. There's no distinction made, them, made between them. And so uh, you see that, that unusual thing here happening with these disciples of John at the beginning. Um, so we have unusual disciples, and we also have, in a sense, an unusual ministry. We keep on reading in verse 8, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And so what's unusual about this is not that he got ran out of the synagogue. That's pretty normal, right? We've come to expect when Paul shows up, there's going to be a kerfuffle and he's going to end up being kicked out of the synagogue. What's great is that he's able to stay, stay there and minister for three months. 
He had been received well on the previous time through and they asked him back. And so he obliges and he comes and he speaks and he's there for three months. And he's, I think this number is given to indicate to us that this was an exceptionally long period of time that he got to minister in the synagogue before he was run out. And of course, just like he did in Corinth, he finds another place where he can lecture, a lecture hall, the lecture hall of Tyrannus, the school of Tyrannus. Uh, This would be a a room that would be uh, large enough that he could have people come and he could teach them and stuff like that. He has a a very uh, long ministry. So he stayed three months in the synagogue. And what happens when he's teaching in the hall of Tyrannus? He's there for another couple of years. Actually, in the next chapter, when Paul is summarizing all of his ministry in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesus, he could say he was there for three years. You've seen Paul get run out of town in a day or a week or a couple of weeks. And here he is in Ephesus for an extended period of time. And so an unusual ministry. And and not only is there an unusual ministry, there's unusual effectiveness. This continued, uh, continuing on in verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Jews and Greeks. All the residents of Asia, of course, this isn't the continent of Asia. This is Asia, the province, which is a, the western part of Turkey. And, uh, but still, even narrowing it down, all the residents of that area heard the gospel. All the residents of that area had been evangelized. That doesn't mean that every one of them believed, of course, as we're going to see continuing on in our chapter. But what this means is his, his setting up shop there in the house of Tyrannus in, and teaching daily, lecturing daily, was such an effective means of ministry. And he had peace there for a good long time. So effective that the people being trained there were probably the ones going out and sharing. So that they went back to the village they came from. Or when they were on a journey, you know, for their business or whatever, they would share as they were going. So the end result is the whole region of Asia heard the gospel. There was a witness of of the gospel everywhere throughout that, that region. And I think it's important for us to keep in mind that where do we see Paul at this point? Paul himself is in the hall of Tyrannus teaching. The people he's teaching are the ones who are going out. Of course, this is consistent with what Paul would write later in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 4, when he's talking about what an effective church is, that God has given gifts to the church. What are those gifts? Well, there he's talking about evangelists and pastors and teachers, prophets and apostles. He's given the teachers, the ones who teach the Word of God, to the church for what purpose? To equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And so when Paul writes back to them in Ephesians chapter 4, he's reminding them of what they already saw happen. He taught day in and day out, and they went and shared the gospel. Paul obviously is not afraid to share the gospel. We've seen him beaten for it. And at the end of the story, you're going to see him volunteering to go before a crowd of 25,000 angry pagans, desirous to preach the gospel. But the method of ministry that God has given us, the gift that he's given to the church is those who will teach us to equip us so that we then can go out and be the ones who are ministering the gospel where we go. So that even uh, like, like in Asia, there could be a sense in which all of Churchill County has been evangelized. Not everyone will repent, but everyone will hear the gospel. And that's, that's the call to us. And that's what strikes me about this passage and particularly this verse right here. You had the great apostle Paul and what was he doing? He was teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching. And the people he was teaching took the, took the ministry, took the message of the gospel and took it out. And so how does that apply to us in our situation? Well, the, the 
the ministers, the ones going to carry on the work of service, are you all going to take the gospel out when you are mowing your lawn or talking to your neighbor, when you go across the street, when you're dealing with your own family members who don't know the Lord, when you have opportunity to talk to people, you're the ministers of the gospel. You're the ministers. There have been times when I've been called uh, by someone to share the gospel with a friend or a family member. And, and sometimes I understand that this particular relationship might be difficult or maybe this person is one of those people who likes to raise a lot of smoke screens and they're hard to share with or whatever. But in general, don't call the pastor to share the gospel with your friend. Share the gospel with your friend and then invite them to church. They're going to hear it here. They're going to hear it from the pastor. They're going to be taught here. And so we see that Paul writes about that in Ephesians chapter 4, and we see him uh, working that out here, the, the Lord using this kind of setup there in Ephesus. So we have his, uh, his usual message, but it results in some very unusual things there in Ephesus. We continue on reading with some extraordinary results. Reading in verse 11 and 12, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the, hand, by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. First of all, I want to observe, it says extraordinary miracles. Isn't that a redundancy? (laughs) You know, these miracles were so much that Luke, who's writing this story, who knows about the history and was there for much of it and saw this stuff and, and, and heard about this and was familiar with this, that he could say, yeah, these weren't your average run-of-the-day, run-of-the-mill uh, miracles, you know, like the kind you see every day, right? These are extraordinary miracles. So that, that should jump out at you right away that there's something big going on here. This is a big deal. And, and you, as you continue reading, you know that Luke's not just joking, right? Uh, these, they were extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. This is amazing stuff, unlike anything you'll find. This is, this is highly unusual the closest thing we see, it, see to it in the book of Acts is, is earlier on when, uh, when Peter was at the height of his ministry. He's kind of disappeared by this point. But uh, back in chapter 5, Peter's ministry was, was at its height. People would bring the sick out to the street so that maybe, hopefully, Peter's uh, shadow would fall upon them and they might you know, be healed as he went by or whatever. So it's a, it's a similar kind of thing. But here you have not just the hope that being in uh, Paul's presence will, will be healing, but in the sense, even stuff taken from his presence out to people who are sick would cause healing. And not just the hope of that, but the fact of that. This is very unusual. So what is going on? Well, a couple of things. First of all, scholars agree this is sort of the pinnacle of Paul's ministry here. This time in Ephesus is a wonderful example of what he was doing, and it was the height of, of his ministry. That's, that's one thing. And so you're going to see some incredible stuff, like him being able to stay there three years, being able to stay in the synagogue for three months, etc. But more than that, there's, there's something else that's going on. And then it has to do with the city of Ephesus itself. Ephesus was famous for three things. And the first one it had formerly been famous for and less so now. If you have your map in the back of your Bible, which I always encourage you to look at, if you will look at where Ephesus is, you can see that it has a seaport and it's also connected with uh, Asia Minor. And so, so it would be a convenient trade route, 
right? To go, to go inland, to, to uh, you know, ships could stop as they were going by. It was a convenient location. It was very profitable. But I say it was formerly more famous for this than present because at this time, the, the harbor kept silting in. And so they kept having to dredge the harbor. And it, and it would silt in, and they kept doing this. And so that now, all these years later, the city Ephesus, the remains of it, are seven miles from the water. So it silted in that much because the river was coming through and it kept depositing silt. And so it was kind of fading in that regard, but it was famous for something else. And the second thing it was very famous for was the temple of Artemis was there. And we're going to get back to Artemis and who, who she was and what her uh, religion was like, etc. But she was, they were very famous for the temple of Artemis. And um, that's going to that's gonna finish out our chapter. But there was a third thing that they were famous for, magic. There's a, there's a saying in ancient writings about Ephesian writings. The Ephesian writings, that means scrolls of spells written down. The, the idea of uh, the magic that went on here was that these magicians were people who could somehow discern who the good spirits were or the evil spirits, the good gods and the evil gods. And they could discern that. And not only could they discern that, but they also had figured out how to twist the arm of the good spirits to make them do what you wanted. And once they figured out how to do that, they would make a spell or some special ritual or incantation, some word of power, something like that to be able to wrestle this, figuratively speaking, wrestle this, uh, this evil spirit or this uh, good spirit to do your will. And so once they had figured that out, they would write it down and they would sell these things, right? And so um, magic was a big deal. The practice of magic, the selling of magic, the purchasing of magic and all that stuff was a, was a big deal of what was going on there in Ephesus. And you see, if that's their background, if, if that's what's in their mind, it kind of makes sense that when Jesus shows up on the scene, he would trump them. Oh, you're, you're, you're pretty good at magic here, are you? Okay. Well, the God of all things will come and do what he wants. And so uh, he uses his servant, Paul, to do these amazing miracles, amazing enough that Luke would say, yeah, they were extraordinary. They were not just average. They were extraordinary miracles. Even to the point of taking a handkerchief... You know, like Paul, who's working as a tent maker or whatever, wiping the sweat off his brow or whatever. And they would take that because it's got some of, you know, Paul on it or whatever. And the, and, and the Lord would use that to heal people. Or his apron that he worked in. And you have extraordinary miracles going on. And I think it's to combat the extraordinary belief in magic that the people had. That they believed in their magic. It was a big deal. They were very famous for it. And yet Jesus comes in and he trumps it. He shows that he is more powerful than the most powerful spell they could come up with. He is more effective than the most effective spell they had ever devised. And so he comes in and shows that these, these other beliefs are really faulty and, and uh, that, that they should, people should turn in faith to Christ instead, the one who is the real power, the one who is the real God, the one who is really able to do these miracles and not just selling paper. And so you have, uh, you have this very unusual um, uh, set of miracles that are being done. I think that's the reason. And we continue on. That helps us even understand what's going on in verses 13 through 16 as we talk about these counterfeit exorcists. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. 
But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And so here you have this situation where uh, even Jews are being drawn into this sort of mysterious, magical belief, uh, kind of uh, supernatural kind of place of Ephesus. And they were traveling around. There were a group of them. They called themselves the the sons of Sceva. And by the way, there is no uh, records don't show any high priest, any Jewish high priest named Sceva. So I don't know if they just came up with a good name like the great professor so-and-so to sell his snake oil or if it was something else. But but, uh, we don't have uh, any record of a uh, high priest actually named Sceva. But these guys took it upon themselves and it was their job to be itinerant Jewish exorcists. You know, I, I've had some odd jobs before, but I've never done that, you know. In, in what world is that a normal thing that you could go and do? Make money traveling around to, uh, to, to do exorcisms. Well, apparently in Ephesus... And uh, sometimes in the news you'll read about it even nowadays. But, of course, they came and they, they had heard about Jesus. These, these uh, sons of Sceva, these exorcists, had heard about Jesus. And they thought his name functioned kind of like one of those words of power, like the way magic worked. If you just say the right thing, if you just put the, the spell in order in this way, you can, you can bend the arm, you can, you, can, uh, you can harness the power of this God or the Spirit. And so they try to do that with Jesus. And so they... They come to this, this man and they say, I adjure you by this Jesus uh, whom Paul proclaims. <laughs> so you can tell they himself don't know Jesus at all. What they want to do is they just want to take his name and use it for their own end. Now, of course, this is a magical situation. This is very uh, supernatural, kind of a weird kind of, kind of name but, uh, or situation happening. But you don't have to think too hard to, to find people who take the name of Jesus because they think it's going to benefit them, right? We we still live in a time, contrary to what you might see in the news or, or what you might be afraid of, we still live in a time when people will name the name of Christ because it benefits them. Either it gets them ahead in business, or it helps them get elected, or it helps country music fans buy their records, I don't know. But it helps, it's, we're still at a time where people name the name of Christ so that they can personally be, be uh, benefited in their lives, as in financially or politically or in some other way. And you, you hear how hollow that is. It's just about as hollow as when these men were confronting a demon and the demon was able to point out, yeah, I'm, I, I know who Jesus is. He's, he's a demon. He's a, he's a created spirit being who actually fell in rebellion against the God who created him. And John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is, is the one who created them. So yes, he knows Jesus. And he's heard of Paul. But who are these guys? You're just pulling out the name of Jesus thinking it's a word of power and thinking you're going to make me do what you want because you said the right syllables, because you invoke the name of a God you don't know. And how often in our day do people invoke the name of a God they don't know? thinking it will benefit them. I think it's a whole lot. And I think the trajectory of the way our culture is going, that will become more and more evident uh, that that is what people have, have been doing because it will come to a point where it is no longer beneficial. It is no longer profitable and helpful to name the name of Jesus if you don't really believe in him. And so I think people will stop. And we're going to see polls and numbers of drastic decreases in the number of, of uh, self-proclaimed Christians in our culture. Don't be afraid. That's just revealing what's really truly there.
and he is even there at this point. And so this demon, uh, you know, supernaturally empowers this, this man to thrash these seven guys and strip their clothes off so, so that they run out, you know, naked and, and uh, wounded from this encounter. And so you have this very, another very odd situation, but it's, it's, uh, it's essentially the, uh, the, the work of God revealing the, the faulty faith of the people in Ephesus and showing and demonstrating his own power instead. Demonstrating who he is and the truth of his salvation. We continue reading and we see evidence of that. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came professing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced the uh, magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. You see a mass repentance. You see a couple of different kinds of repentance in response to this. Some is saving repentance and some is not. You have a group of unbelievers, a large group of unbelievers, who begin to realize you don't mess with Jesus. You don't mess with the name of Jesus. And so they have a a, a fear, a respect. This doesn't mean they repented and turned to Christ. This means they understood there's something powerful and unique about that name, and they begin to to extol it. They begin to understand Jesus is real, and he does real stuff. And so um, you better be careful how you, uh, how you talk about him or whatever, as evidenced by the misuse of his names by, name by these uh, sons of Sceva. And, you, I mean, you hear that now, right? How many atheists, when they, you know, get right down to it, if their life is threatened or they're in danger of death, will cry out to God, right? And it's because a couple of reasons. First of all, deep down, there is no, no such thing as an atheist. Everybody knows God exists. Romans chapter 1 tells us that. He is our creator, and, and we're, we're born knowing that he exists, and yet the problem is we reject him. And so the atheist who has rejected God, yet when the time comes, when the chips are down, their life is on the line, they cry out to God. There's some degree of, of, of reverence somewhere, can be at that point. They've got nowhere else to go, so they may as well go to God because uh, sometimes that works, right? I had a friend growing up who was just as much an unbeliever as I was and, uh, and just as pagan as I was. And yet he had a benefit in that he had some degree of church background and he would not blaspheme. He would not take the Lord's name in vain. And, uh, and he would get on to me when I would. And we were both just unbelievers. It wasn't, he was more Christian than I was or anything like that. But he himself, because of the way he was raised, had a healthy understanding that you do not mistreat God's name. And so there, there, that's kind of what you see going on here with the people of Ephesus. So that was a form of of repentance in that sense. But then second of all, you have repentance among believers. You have these people who are now believers. They're coming forward and they're divulging. They're, they're telling people that they had, they had continued practicing their magic arts even after, after they had trusted in Christ, even after they had become believers. And they come forward and they, they confess this. And more than that, they bring their scrolls with them, these Ephesian writings. They bring their scrolls and they burn them. They pile them up and they, they count how much it was worth. And how much did it say it was worth? 50,000 pieces of silver. That's essentially 50,000 days worth of wages for a day laborer. 
I didn't do the calculations, but that's a lot of money. A lot of value. And these people could have sold these things. Perhaps they spent that money to buy these things. And yet, in their repentance, they just destroyed them. They wanted them done away with. And I wonder sometimes about our own repentance. I wonder about uh, the things that we perhaps carry on with us that we should bring and repent of. We don't need to confess all of our sins before all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, but... uh, but there's some, there are some things we need to repent of. We've been carrying on these practices. And so you see as a result of these demonstrations of power, whether it's through this, uh, this demonic situation that happened or these incredible uh, miracles that are being done, you see that people were um, repenting of their sins. Believers were repenting. And we see in verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so you have throughout this whole time, the Word of God is growing and expanding. It is doing its work. The kingdom of God is spreading, and the gospel is going all over uh, Asia, all over the province of Asia, and particularly the city there of Ephesus. And so we continue on uh, reading that uh, not only was there, there are extraordinary things going on, but there also was extraordinary fallout. We continue reading in uh, verse uh, 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And he, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great god goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And so I said that uh, Ephesus was famous for three things, and this is one of those three things. And actually, this one was, one was that at the point, at this point, was in prominence. Artemis is a kind of a combination of two different goddesses. There is a goddess uh, who is Artemis of Greek mythology, and she's like the goddess of hunting and whatnot. She's very chaste and pure and, and things like that. And then you have the Persian goddess who's kind of mixed in with her. And of course, she's the goddess of fertility, and she's the mother goddess. And so you have this kind of warping together syncretism of these two goddesses into Artemis, where she was no longer chaste, but she was the goddess of fertility, and so she was worshipped sexually and those sorts of things. The temple to Artemis was enormous. If any of you have been to, to Greece or seen pictures of the Parthenon, the temple to Artemis was four times the size of that one. It was 425 feet long and 125 feet wide. It was enormous, just enormous. It was considered to be one of the wonders of the world at this point. And it was famous. And there were little shrines and stuff to Artemis all throughout the empire from Spain uh, all the way east. But this is the one that was the most famous. This was her home. 
And of course, they would make, as this, uh, this Demetrius guy, what he does is he would, he was a silversmith and he would make these miniatures of the shrine to sell that would remind you of the real shrine to Artemis. And you could take it home and that could be your place of worship or it could just be, uh, uh, you know, something of value that you might take, a, a trinket or a, a memento or something like that. But these people sold these things and people would come from out of town and they would, they would visit Ephesus purely for the reason of going to see Artemis and worshiping there. And of course, uh, these people made good money from this. This was a big deal in what they were dealing with. And so, so you've got this very famous uh, situation, this very famous goddess. And of course, Paul is preaching the gospel. And part of Paul's gospel is that gods made with hands aren't really gods. They're just things. They're just items, right? And so uh, Demetrius and, and the others become to be, uh, they're afraid of this powerful ministry that Paul is having that's actually having an impact on their economic status, or at least that's what Demetrius is arguing. And so we see that they're, they have this local but very famous uh, paganism there, and we see that it's, it's accompanied with extreme fanaticism. We continue reading in verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So you have this, this fanaticism that's just amazing. This, uh, you can actually go, if you go to Ephesus nowadays, I've not been there, you can go and see this theater seats 24 to 25,000 people. It was enormous. And so you can imagine that place just packed with these guys in there and they're just shouting, you know, so uh, they're, they're loud, they're worked up, they're, there's confusion, they don't know what's going on. And when this guy Alexander, uh, it doesn't seem like he was a Christian, he was a representative of the Jews. Perhaps the Jews were trying to say, hey, this is the Christian, th- these, that's the Christian guys that are causing the problems, not we Jews, leave us alone. But regardless... Uh, he stands up to speak and it's clear by looking at him that, that he's a Jew. And so the Ephesians are enraged even more because here you have another guy who's preaching uh, one God and that God is not Artemis. And, and so they, they raise their cheer and for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians is their cry. And so you have them being whipped up into a frenzy. And then it, it's always interesting to me, this surprising intervention. It's surprising and it's anticlimactic because you can imagine Paul, who's the missionary, in the background and he's waiting and he's thinking, you know, there may be 25 people out there and they're all mad at Christians and, and they're all confused. And what, what better opportunity does an apostle have to go and speak to crowds and crowds of people? And so he wants to go up there and do it, but his friends won't let him. No, 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 Paul, they will tear you apart. And so they, they encourage him not to. And so he doesn't get to. Well, so who ends up saving the day? Who ends up quieting the crowd? Well, the, the town clerk. And so I always think that's kind of anticlimactic. But it's, it's, the, it's the Spirit of God at work. We continue on in verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, 
Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So basically he gets up and says, look, these men are not uh, criminals. And uh, the way you've gathered right now is going to cause a problem essentially because you don't have a permit. (laughs) You're here on the wrong day. And that quells the whole thing. It puts the whole thing down and they all kind of go away because they didn't want to get in trouble with Rome or or any other authorities for rioting. And so uh, it's a simple town clerk. We have no indication he's a believer either. He just gets up and speaks, addresses the situation and says, this isn't the right time. This isn't the right way. If you guys want to go about this, that we have courts of law that you can do this with. And that quiets it down very anticlimactically. Like he wanted Paul to stand up and be able to preach his final and fullest sermon on who Jesus is to this crowd of of 25,000 screaming pagans. But he's not even allowed on stage. And so you have uh, this, this odd and anticlimactic kind of ending to the chapter. And yet, when you think about what has been accomplished, what the Lord has done throughout this chapter, uh, it, it is amazing. This is a very impressive chapter. Like I said, this is one of the, perhaps the crescendo, the highlight of all of Paul's ministry right here. Three years that he got to spend and minister in a, in a very important city like Ephesus. And so I have several takeaways here. The first couple are very short. And first of all, it has to do with the fact that that the more people got to know Jesus and see what he did, see what he could do, the powerful miracles that he worked as his name is being proclaimed, the better Jesus is known, the more his people are drawn to repentance and the more even unbelievers are drawn to fear him. That it was the, it was the working of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the church, sometimes in a miraculous, amazing ways, but also by virtue of the gospel being proclaimed everywhere. It led to unbelievers growing in their fear of God, in their version of it, not a saving fear of God, but led believers to repentance as well. Second of all, Jesus was not only glorifying himself, uh, not only by miracles and healings, but even through the mouth of demons. That, that's the Jesus that we serve. He, he will use even those who hate him utterly to accomplish his purposes. To glorify his name. And so I take, I take comfort from that. When things are down, when things are not going the way I think they should and whatnot, that the Lord will, will uh, work out, even of that dark situation, glory for himself. Thirdly, the gospel of Jesus is threatening to paganism and other religions. The gospel is threatening to paganism and it's threatening to other religions. But his people are not. His people get off scot-free here. Paul is not torn to shreds. He's not beaten like he has been before. He's not thrown in jail. His people, God's people, we are not a threat. And we are not to be a threat. The message that we proclaim, the gospel message, is powerful. And it is threatening. It is utterly destructive 
to any argument brought up against it, to any false religion brought up against it. It is utterly destructive. It is threatening. We are not. Fourthly, and this is the next to last one, Christ is more powerful than Artemis and her followers. He's more powerful than the magic that was so prevalent in Ephesus. He is, he is the dominant figure in all of this. By the way, if you read through this, you see that Paul is sort of in the background. He's teaching and, and preaching all the time and things like that, but he's not, he's not at the forefront. Even, if, even when this riot thing comes about, he's not the one at work there. He's in the background. It is God who is at work, showing himself to be more powerful than Artemis and the magic and whatever the Ephesians wanted to do. But merely claiming his name isn't enough to give us access to this power. Just by claiming his name, that does not give us access to who he really is. His name is not a word of power to be spoken, to invoke, uh, to get God to do something that we want to be done. We live in a day when it's still cool to a certain degree to call yourself a Christian. And those who are calling themselves Christians for the purpose of material gain or popularity or popularity with a certain crowd or whatever, they have received their reward. That material gain, that popularity, and that popularity with a certain crowd. That's the extent of the reward they will get from claiming the name of Jesus in such a vain way. And fifthly, who do these people understand Jesus to be? Think about the different people groups that are represented. Who do they understand Jesus to be? And so the question to us, to you, who do you understand Jesus to be? The 12 disciples of John were waiting for Jesus but didn't know who he was. They were waiting. They were prepared. They had been prepared. They had gone through the baptism of repentance. They just did not know. And so as soon as Paul proclaims the message to them, they believe. They were, they were prepared for Jesus. Some people are prepared in advance to hear. I, I can't explain my own coming to faith. I, 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 I can't point to the Lord uh, preparing me in different ways. All I know is when I heard it, I believed. I didn't have a church background to prepare me, but God had prepared me, and it was His mercy. So the 12 disciples are are a particular case, a particular situation, but others stubbornly disbelieve and they speak evil of the way, right? You have the Jews who were in the, in the synagogue that, where he was preaching and finally they got to the point where they weren't, it just that they, it wasn't just that they were only not believing. They actually began to speak evil of the way. They continued in stubbornness, right? And of course there are people nowadays who continue in stubbornness against who Jesus is, that they don't want uh, to hear about him. They don't want to submit to him. They don't, want to, they don't want to know anymore. They kind of wish Jesus' followers would just go away. I heard a quote yesterday on the radio about, I think it was, I don't remember who it was, it was a philosopher who said, in 20 years, the church will be gone. Of course, he's been dead for about 150 years. And uh, the, the, he was dead, you know, he was dead within 20 years of that time. And the house that he lived in when he said that is now owned by a, uh, a, a Bible company, a Bible distribution society. <laughs> So there's irony there, but some people continue in stubborn disbelief and even speak evil of the way, right? These itinerant Jewish exorcists, they thought Jesus was a means of power. He's a way to get ahead. And that did not work out well with them. They ended up naked and bruised and bleeding and run out of the house. And so uh, you have that category of people and still people think that Jesus is a means of obtaining power in some form. Many believed 
And they publicly repented of their magical practices. Some people believed and some people realized as they were believing that they needed to repent. They needed to turn away from some of the vestiges of their old life they were still leaning on and turn wholly and fully to Christ and and to consecrate themselves to him. And so they did. And the worshipers, worshipers of Artemis saw Jesus as a threat to their way of life and to their businesses and to their culture. And those opinions still exist when you talk to people. Those opinions still exist sometimes in here. Of people who come to here, people who sit with us regularly and and don't believe. But I want to close with a few questions. Do you see him as your opponent or enemy? Threatening your position on the throne of your life and threatening your beloved sinful lifestyle? Do you see Jesus as a means of improving your situation or your position somehow? That's still possible today. But is that you? Or do you see your need for him? Not for gain in this world, but for peace with God, your creator. If so, he will forgive your sins. He will give you his Holy Spirit and he will make you his own child. Perfectly and finally and utterly at peace with God through Jesus. And so as we read this chapter, we see those different aspects, those different means of trying to use Jesus or run from Jesus. And we see Him held up. We see Him showing Himself strong. And that's the Jesus that we are called to turn away from all these other things, unbelief, our old lifestyle, turn away from the things we used to trust in, whatever our Artemis or our magic was, and turn to Him. Believe in Him, and He will give you life, and He will give you forgiveness, and He will give you His Holy Spirit. And so, as I read this chapter, I see a very strange chapter with very strange things happening, and yet, in each one of them, it is Jesus showing Himself strong over these other obstacles, what appear to be obstacles, over these enemies of those who would lift themselves up. And maybe there are enemies in your life. Things, maybe it's health, maybe it's other things that would, that would push you away from Jesus. He is more powerful in those things. I don't know what He will do in your health situation. I don't know what He will do in your family situation. But He is more powerful, and He is more valuable. I'm going to pray for us right now. And uh, after I'm done with that, uh, we're going to have a family of uh, people to come forward who would love to pray with you. And if, they, if, if you want to talk about some of these things, they would love to do that. They would love to talk with you and pray with you about these things. Let's go now to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you that, uh, that you are so much greater than anything that might uh, come against you, whether it's uh, ideas in our world today, whether it's temptations in our world today, whether it's uh, uh, other religions that might raise themselves up against you, whether it's um, whatever it is that might come up against you, I, I praise you and thank you and declare that you are greater than all, that you are the one true God. There is none like you, and you are the creator of all things. And we don't worship gods made with hands. We, we worship you, the one true God who is eternal, everlasting, and our creator. And I thank you also that you have sent your son as the redeemer to buy us back, to pay that penalty for our sins, to to stand and live righteously where we have not, and to die the death that we deserve to die 
in order that we might be made right with you. So I thank you for redemption in Christ. Father, we don't see uh, wild miracles like this happening. We don't see uh, giant riots in the streets and things like that. But we look at these and we look to you and see that you were dominant in these situations. You were strong in these situations. You were at work in these situations. And you are certainly at work in the situations in my life. So, Father, I trust you. We trust you. And we pray for your blessing. And, Father, we do pray that you would help us to be ministers where we go in, in our lives, not just on a Sunday morning and not just here or, uh, or whatever, but that we would be ministers where we go, that we would see the result here in Churchill County, the same result that was seen there in Ephesus, that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. May it be so here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, and God bless you. You are dismissed.